You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Uh, I have to say this from the outset that Israel is indeed a uh, probably and arguably especially from a biblical point of view the most fascinating country on this planet and regardless of whether you know nothing about the bible you will still find it a fascinating country especially when you put the bible into the equation and you put god into the equation or like many of us seated here probably the majority of us if you know something about the bible what the nation of Israel does for you and for me is it proves to us that we have not followed cunningly devised fables. We have put our trust and confidence that this Bible contains the truth. And one way of doing that, one of the most infallible ways in which we can do that is to look at the nation of Israel. And so we ask this question, as many people do, as we all do, some stage in our life, and maybe not that long ago, we just may have asked the question, is God real? Is there really a God out there that we can put confidence and trust in that what he says in this book is accurate, it's truthful, and it will come to pass. Is there a God that we can really absolutely put our confidence in? Well, when you look at that term there, is God real? Just, just rearrange the letters without adding any to them or taking anyone away, any of them away and you, you get your answer. It's pretty, it's pretty straightforward because when you get asked the question, is God real? One way of proving it for sure is look at God and look at that nation Israel. And you will have 100% confidence that when you leave this hall today or this evening after our second, and hopefully if you come back again tomorrow night, uh, after our third, you will be you will have in your mind, yes, I'm not following cunningly devised fables. This is real. This is all happening exactly as the Word of God said it would happen. So um, we want to go through this reasonably systematically, and, and we're looking at it from a point of view in this, this session here. Uh, to see how Israel does prove that there is a God, that they are truly, as the, as the presentation address um, is, is titled, are an amazing witness. They are an amazing witness to how uh, there is truly a God. Now, Jerome read a very short reading for us, and yet it's one of the most important little sections of Scripture that God deliberately wanted us to look at as a means of demonstrating to us that he does exist. And it's in those just few verses. There's plenty of other passages in Scripture as well, but this is one of my favourites, where God says to all the nations, he puts out this challenge, all right? He says, righto, all you nations out there, bring proof to the table that all your gods are real. All right? I want to know whether there's any validity in the gods of the Philistines, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and all of those countries of that era. Please bring your evidence to the table. 
That's what he says in verse 9. I want you to bring your evidence. Of course, there's silence because they've got no evidence that their gods of you know, wood and stone are real. There's no evidence at all. They cannot bring any evidence at all. Stony silence by all the nations. And then God says, right oh, it's now my turn. I'm going to bring my evidence to the table to prove that I exist. So what does he do? He brings the nation of Israel and he says, you're my witnesses. He puts them in the witness box of a courtroom, if you like, and they are his witnesses that he exists. Now, when God makes that comment, Israel, you're my witnesses to prove the world that I do indeed exist. When God makes that comment, then we need to put that to the test. He wants us to put that to the test. He wants us to marvel at that nation and, you know, be overawed at how incredibly special that nation is. By the way, can we just say, as, as Christadelphians, we don't hold up Israel as if they're better than any other nation on the planet, all right? Let's make that very clear. In fact, God says... In Ezekiel, he says, you know what? He said, you're worse than the other nations. You've let me down time and time and time again. You've profaned my name. You're worse than many of the other nations. So we're not elevating them as if they're some unique, special people that are better than anybody else. But there is a big difference. And we'll see this hopefully in our session tonight, this afternoon. God's made promises to that nation he intends on keeping and finally, and one day, as we're going to see, all being well, God willing, tomorrow night, finally, and one day, they'll realise their mistake, having crucified their Messiah, and they will truly be, ultimately, God's chosen people. Yes, they're his chosen people now, but they'll finally understand the truth of all the prophecies that have been made about them. So, please don't go away thinking, oh wow, you've elevated Israel far better than all the other nations. We're elevating Israel as being God's chosen people. Yes, God has a plan and purpose with them. Yes, and he will work through those people. Yes, he will. And he has made them his witnesses that he exists. Yes, there's a long way to go with that nation before they finally do accept their true Messiah. But that's a story for another time. So let's have a little, few little... Uh, interesting, fast facts about Israel. Some of you have seen this before, but I always like to put this up because I think we need to really fully understand the amazement or the amazing uh, thing about Israel and why it is that they have been put in the witness box by God as being his witnesses. So let, let's put this map up of, of, uh, of Australia, a very well-recognised country around the world, distinct shape. It's, it's, quite, it's quite a unique shape. But when you add over the top three geographically proportion, or not proportion, but shapes of Israel over the top of, of Australia, I'll put three there. We're going to just try and learn roughly how big Israel is compared to Australia. So I'm going to ask a question. We've got one, two, and three. So just put your hands up if you think it's number one. The size of Israel compared to Australia. Number one, put your hand up. Simple Simon says. No? Okay, who thinks it's number two? Yep, number two. And who thinks it's number three? Yeah, okay, number three. Mm -hmm. Right, oh, well, guess what? <clears throat> not number one. And I'm sorry it's not number three. Now, who's put number two? Put the hand up. You put the hand up? I hate to tell you, you're wrong as well. <laughs> All right? 
Because Israel, compared to Australia, is that big. Alright? So Israel fits into Australia 367 times. And yet, they appear in our papers, on our news services, at radio, TV networks, everywhere, 50 times more than any other country on the planet per head of population. Why is that? What's the reason? Well, we read it, didn't we? God says, well, hello, I put them there as my witnesses. I want you to hone in on that country, that little baby tiny country that fits into Australia that many times, and see the importance that that nation has in world affairs, because I've put him in that position. And right throughout their history, they've always been in a position. Maybe not so much as a nation, because they've only been a revived modern nation since 1948. But that, to me, speaks volumes of how God is is automatically putting them there for all the attention of the world to be focused in on. So, what do we know about them as far as their size is concerned? Just how tiny is this nation? Well, um, it makes up only a quarter of 1%. A quarter of 1%, not of the world, of the Middle East. A quarter of 1%. They make up just 004 4% of the world's land mass. Its population is only 0.1% of the world's population. I mean, we're talking insignificant numbers here. This is incredible. And yet, there wouldn't be a day go by somewhere in the world we have some reference to Israel in our media, even here in Australia, where we tend to be divorced from a lot of the stuff that goes on overseas. I mean, even the, the current war in Europe, we only now sporadically hear a little bit about it. Of course, go over to Europe and go over to the Middle East, you'll hear a lot about what's going on. But here in Australia, you won't hear much. But you'll always seem to be hearing and reading something about Israel. For such a small country, they do dominate a, uh, a lot of uh, attention. Um, you know, they, they are the only country that has never lost its national identity or culture. Even though they weren't formed as a nation for nearly 2,000 years, while they were dispersed throughout the then-known world, they never lost their identity as Jewish people or their culture. That in itself is absolutely and truly amazing. You would have thought that as time went on, that would all just dissipate and disappear and then they'd be just like everybody else. Not so. Israel are God's witnesses that he exists and he was in he was going to ensure that they kept that identity and that culture so what else do we know about israel well there's a little bit of interesting information you've all heard of the nobel or the not the nobel but the the uh the various well they are nobel prizes you can get prizes for peace and you can get prizes for you know literature and, and all sorts of different prizes for uh, your uh, ability to be able to project yourself in the world doing something very, very special. Uh, literature, peace, physics, medicines. Well, the global Islamic population is about 1.2 billion, not million, billion people. 20% uh, of the world's population, in actual fact. Now, they've received that many Nobel Prizes. 
Alright, there's, there's a fair few. I actually quite find that one interesting. Now, so Arafat got the Peace Prize, 1994. That, that is interesting. Uh, but here, here we have a situation where they've done quite well. The Jewish population, on the other hand, they're only 14 million people worldwide, about 0.02% of the world's population, and they have received the following Nobel Prizes. Now, you might have to have glasses on because I couldn't quite fit them all on. There's still a few more that we can add to that. And you have to say to yourself, what, what is it about the Jewish people that they've excelled in all avenues of life, whether it be science, whether it be literature, physics, medicines, uh, every avenue of life they've excelled extremely well. What is it about those people? Ye are my witnesses that I exist, says God, and I'm going to elevate you in the presence of all mankind that they will look at you and say, there's something special about these people. I want to know more. And when you want to know more about that subject, you are directed to understand that God does exist. So where does it all begin? Well, it all begins with this man here, Abraham, the father of the Jewish race. And God said, I am going to make you, he chose Abraham, we're not going to go into this story, I'm quite happy to talk to you about this at some other time, but he chose Abraham uh, right back in the Old Testament times when he was, he was going to develop the seed that he wanted that would finally bring to the Lord Jesus Christ and, and he made promises to this man that if you do what I tell you to do, you are going to be greatly blessed. I'm going to make you a great nation, he said. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great. You'll be a blessing. I'll bless those that bless you. And whoever curses you, just note that. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people on the earth will be blessed through you. Now that is a prophecy and a promise all in one hit. Hasn't really been fully fulfilled yet. But Abraham is known by the Jews as their father. Started with this man. In actual fact, it's, he was a father of two races of people. So he started with his first son, with Hagar, his handmaid. He had a son by the name of Ishmael. And on the other hand, with Sarah, his very aged wife, he had another son, miraculously really, whose name was Isaac. Now God was very interested in working through the line of the promise that he made with Abraham, which was with Sarah, through the line of Isaac. Uh, interestingly, uh, Ishmael uh, went on to have 12 sons, and Ishmael became, really, the father of the Arab race. And on the other hand, Isaac had Jacob, and they had 12 sons, and they became the progenitors of the Jewish race. So we've got... Jews and we've got the Arabs both claim Abraham rightfully so as their father. I mean that I love that picture there because that's anything but a, a true indication of how those two races of people have gotten on together, especially since in the last 74 years since 1948 they haven't got on like that at all. but one day, one day it's promised that the Arabs and the Jews will come together, as one. And that won't be because of mankind's doing, it'll be because of God's doing. So it all started with the man Abraham. 
Well, of course, through the lineage of Isaac and Jacob, the 12 sons, and one of those sons was Joseph, and then having, uh, you may know the story, I'm sure some of you are very well aware of it, having gone down into Egypt and made their home into Egypt while the great famine was on, and it was a long-term residence, wasn't it? It was there for a few hundred years until they blew out of proportion in, in population, got to a couple of million people, and the Pharaoh there said, whoa, this is, this is getting out of hand. We've got two million of these Jewish people, these Hebrews, as they were known then, in, in our, on our back doorstep. This is scary stuff. We've got to get rid of it. And so he made it terribly difficult for that race of Hebrews back then. Even though there was a lot of them, he made it, this Pharaoh made it extraordinarily difficult for them, and God raised up another man by the name of Moses. And Moses was specifically uh, um, uh, chosen that he would lead his people, God's people. Moses was born as a Hebrew, raised in Pharaoh's house, that he was chosen to deliver God's people out of that dreadful situation they were in in Egypt. Well, of course, Moses needed a little bit of training. He spent 40 years in the wilderness being trained for this very special event. And he there in the wilderness had his first introduction to God. First introduction to God was in the wilderness. Well, this is quite an interesting introduction because I'll tell you what, if I was God, I would choose anything but the way God chose to introduce himself if he wanted to make a significant impact on a man's life. You know, you, you often think, you know, the power of God, he could have shaken the the heavens up and rent mountains and he did this later on to show himself to the to his own people but to Moses he, he wanted you would think he would he would split mountains in two and cause ground to shake and do all of these incredible things to to say Moses you're in the presence of God no God chooses a very simple but a very interesting little miracle that takes place he introduces Moses to a burning bush Seriously? Burning bush? What was God trying to tell Moses about this burning bush? Why would you do that? Well, because the bush, as many of you would know the story, the bush stayed green. I mean, it was I'm sure it was putting out an awful lot of heat. I'm pretty positive that Moses was like this, going, wow, that is, that is one roaring fire on that bush. And the more he looked at it, the more he was stunned because the bush was staying green. It wasn't curling up and the leaves falling off and everything just whittling down into the ash. The, the bush stayed beautiful and green and it, it was not dying. It was not being extinguished. It was amazing and that was a miracle in itself. And so what God was trying to tell Moses was something very, very special. So we just imagine this bush out there in the wilderness. Uh, Moses uh, is, is, is looking at this bush and, and, and wondering what is this all about. Well, uh, let the Bible tell us, the flame represents trials, we'll put some quotes up in a minute, and the bush represents Israel. So what Moses was being told here is, Moses, you're going to deliver a whole host of people, two million of them, approximately, don't know the exact number, possibly two million, maybe more, maybe a little less, but there's a massive amount of people you are going to be in charge of delivering them out of Egypt. But I just want you to know a little bit about that people. They're going to go through all their entire history like this bush. The fiery trials are going to be upon them. 
one trial after another, after another, after another, and some of them are going to be extraordinarily fiery and difficult. But make one thing known, Moses. Please understand this. They will never, ever, ever, ever be put out of existence. Ever. No matter how many tries there are at trying to put the Jews out of existence, they will not be put out of existence. They will remain like that green bush, evergreen, even though the fiery trials are upon them. Just a couple of quotes. Malachi 3, I am the Lord, I've changed not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob, reference to Israel, are not consumed. There's the idea of that fire on that green bush. When now Israel walks through the fire, and this is in our reading a bit earlier on in our reading today, when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, you will not be consumed, you will not turn to ash, you will not go out of existence, neither will the flame kindle upon thee. So you just now look at Israel's history and you can see the almighty hand of God working in Israel's, uh, Israel's history throughout all of their history. In fact... Last 3,000 years alone, let's have a look at the nations that have tried to, to try to extinguish Israel. And this is not exhaustive, but of course we can go right back to Egypt, the Philistines, the, uh, the Assyrians, the, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, uh, the Romans. These have all invaded Israel at one time or another. The Byzantines, Byzantines, the Crusaders, the Spanish. Nazi Germany, I even put Hamas up there, terrorist group, and Hezbollah in the north. If they could, they would try. They've tried a few occasions, haven't they, over the last decade or two, of trying to strangle and, and, and destroy Israel. Have any of those succeeded? I mean, seriously, where are all of those world empires or or? military power bases of the area. Where are they? Where is the mighty Egyptian empire? Egypt's still there, but there's not a mighty Egyptian empire like it once was. Where's the Philistines? Gone. Where's the Assyrians? Gone. In fact, they've all gone. The whole lot of them are gone. Hamas might be still there, but they're very controllable by Israel. They've all gone because God says, anyone that tries to extinguish you, I will take care of them. Remember the promise to Abraham? I'll bless them that bless thee, and wow, I will curse them that curse thee and your seed. He's talking about particularly Israel. They will be cursed. I will make them a prey. Those that prey upon you will become the prey. A little note down there, who's next? Come tomorrow night and you'll hear who's next. It's uh, well and truly clearly documented in the word of truth. So all of these uh, military power bases and countries far greater than Israel, have tried to destroy and extinguish Israel. They're like those flames that just poured down in intense heat on Israel, but Israel stayed green. They survived them all, and these are all gone. And people that, that have their Bible, don't have a Bible, and don't look at their Bible, and close their Bible, in fact, don't even reference the Bible when they look at the nation of Israel. They shake their head and say, it's a phenomenon. I just don't get it. I don't understand how Israel could go through all of this and keep on surviving. It just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. I, I, I can't get my head around it. And I've heard people talk like that because they can't work out how Israel is still there 
and they're still going very strong, particularly today, and yet they've survived all of this, these horrors throughout, throughout their ages. When you get your book, when you get this book, and you open it up and you start reading it, and you only got to go to that reading, it all starts to fall in place. You, you, you've got no other option and nothing else that can enter into your mind except to say, ha-ha, there is someone far greater behind the nation of Israel, a power far greater than, than, than behind the nation of Israel that is controlling all of these things. And that's why God said, yes, that's exactly right. They're my witnesses that I exist. Well, of course, the Roman Empire dispersed the Jews way back in AD 70, nearly 2,000 years ago, and, and pushed the Jews uh, right out of Israel into the then-known world. I will scatter you among all the nations. I'm going to disperse you. This is a prophecy that God said. He knew this was going to happen. He planned for it. He prepared for it, that he was going to, to punish Israel for what they had done throughout their history, and in particular for, for murdering... The, his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, they crucified their own Messiah. And God said, well, you're going to be dispersed. I'm sending you out into the, the then known Roman world, which was all of these countries that are shown there on the, on, the, uh, on the screen. But he wasn't going to leave them there. And in Ezekiel chapter 37, God said and made a prophecy, I will bring you home. I will bring you home to Israel. And this is quite amazing. I mean, it's seriously, this is, this is a prophecy that we haven't got any time to, to go into it in any great detail, but I do want to put this little clip on. Uh, it's just a short little uh, clip taken out of Ezekiel chapter 37. And this is what it says. <clears throat> Let's see if it works. The hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, O oh, sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the voice of the Lord. I will make breath into you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am. Thank you. 
right up to 1948. They've been there, and God says, do you think these bones can live a deep? And he says, I, I don't know, God. You know the answer to this. I'm not, I'm not sure, but I'm sure Ezekiel was waiting to see what was going to happen next. And this amazing vision of all the bones coming back together, the household of Israel coming back as a nation, being formed with event after event after event of special little things throughout their history, particularly in the last hundred or so years, and then finally standing up and becoming a great army. And wow, is Israel a very powerful army over there in the Middle East today? And God said, I'll make that happen. And that'll be another proof to prove that I exist. So Ezekiel 37 is a remarkable restoration or prophecy about the restoration and the revival of Israel. And it's 100% accurate. Hasn't been completely fulfilled, by the way, yet. Uh, but much of it has. I mean, this one, this quotation here is something I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, because I find this it's part of the story. This is fascinating to say the least. I will bring them, this is Israel, back into their own land and I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel. You can't be any more specific to, than that. First of all, God is speaking here. It's him that is going to do it. Nobody else. He will work through the events of mankind and make this happen. But he is in control and he is going to make it happen. And I'm not going to make sure you come into your own land, not some other land, your own land, which is where they are today. And I'm going to make you one nation in the mountains of Israel. Here is the prophecy of Ezekiel 37. The question is, how on earth was God going to achieve this? How was he going to achieve it? Well, again, he's very specific, very specific on how this was going to all happen. And he gives us a quote in Jeremiah 16. He says, Behold, I will send for many fishes, said the Lord, and they will fish them. They will fish you. They will, they will throw out the line with a little bit of bait on it, and, and they'll try and lure you with a bit of an attractive bait to come back to the land. That's the first thing that's going to happen. And then God says, hunters will come along and they will hunt you from every mountain, from every hill, out of all the holes of the rocks. So two, two, two events are going to happen in Israel's modern history. First one, the fishermen are going to set out to try to get some interest in the Jews coming back to their homeland, to Israel. And, you know, the greatest fisherman probably that God used was this man here. Name was Theodore Herzl, chairman of the Zionist movement in 1898 and championed the cause for Israel, the Jews, to have a homeland. And he was doing that predominantly in Europe. But guess what? All the Jews in Europe were living very comfortably. They had the best jobs in the world, usually financiers and owners of properties and, and jewellers and you name it. They were very clever at making money and they were very happy with their little environment over there in Europe. So this man here, you know, it's like me when I go fishing. I don't have, my brother Barry goes fishing all the time and I don't think he's had that much luck either in fishing. I, we, we, seriously, I think the last time you went fishing, Barry, you threw the anchor out and wasn't even tied on. So um, I, I really understand how difficult this man had, had a task at trying to, to fish people back to a, 
arid, dry land, which he didn't even have control over, by the way. You couldn't even really get Israel back to that land because he never had control over that land. It was controlled by Turkey, by the Ottoman Empire, the last vestiges of that empire. So he had a real dickens of a job of how he was going to fish them back. But nonetheless, it was necessary that he played an important role. So we need to find out what role he played and how it eventuated into leading to somewhere that Israel could come back. Well, try as he did from 1898 onwards, he couldn't succeed in getting a great deal of interest in going back to Turkey, or sorry, back to Palestine, controlled by Turkey. And secondly, so he never had control of that land to bring them back. And secondly, um, it's, it's, you know, the, the Jews were fairly comfortable with where they were. So he then decided he would approach the British government to see whether they would step in and give an assisting hand in trying to come up with another alternative than a country which was originally Israel, called Palestine, to which they would never be able to get back to because there was nobody that the Ottomans, the Sultan, was not going to let them back into that, that particular land and that they could call it their own. But the British, on the other hand, well, they took a little bit of an interest in this whole affair and they decided, sat down with the Zionist movement, particularly Theodore Herzl, and they said, you know what, we can't help you with Palestine, but we can give you a very fertile country which we would like you to be involved in, and that country is Uganda. And that's when the Ugandan policy was established in 1903. The Uganda policy. And this man here, although he really wanted Palestine, came to the conclusion that we can never get back to Palestine. We ought to accept something that is given to us on a plate. And Uganda was very fertile. It was a, 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 a quite a rich, resourceful country. And, and why, don't we, why don't we accept it? Why don't we sign off on Uganda? Now, he had a little bit of opposition, all right? There's, there's no doubt that some on that Zionist committee wouldn't accept it. But this man and at least two others who are very prominent on the Zionist movement said, yes, we'll take it. We will take the Uganda as our going to be our homeland. Now, that doesn't match in with what God said would happen, does it? I mean, we've really got a problem here because God says, I'll bring you back into your own land. No other land, it's going to be your own and it's going to be on the mountains of Israel. So we've got Bible prophecy, which, by the way, is the mould into which history is being poured, is about to be broken. Because these men were only weeks away, if not days away, from signing off on accepting Uganda as a homeland for Jewish people. So the question is, was, God, was man going to be successful in breaking the prophecy that God had said? Well, we know what the answer is. They were not successful. But how did God deal with it? Well, by the way, <clears throat> this is where Israel would have been uh, had there been... Uh, this acceptance of the Uganda policy. Right there, that's where Israel would have been. And that was not going to fit what the Bible had said. And, and Christadelphian Bible students that were around in these this era, early 1900s, were intently watching what was going on and knew 100% there's no way they're going to go to Uganda. But how was God going to deal with it? What was he going to do? And, you know, let's keep in mind what God says, I'll bring you 
into your own land. I'm going to gather you from every side and bring you into your own land. Not Uganda, not anywhere else that was offered into the mountains of Israel. So how was God going to deal with that? Well, he was only days away from signing off on the dotted line. At the age of 44, he died suddenly of a heart attack. And he was the driving force behind the accepting the Uganda policy. And when you take the driving force away, you, your whole team has lost momentum. The, the bottom fell out of the Uganda policy almost overnight when this man died. God, he had, a, he had a role to play, and when it wasn't going in the right direction, he took that man out of the equation, and the, the Uganda policy fell over. And behind the scenes, there was another man that came to the fore, and his name was Cain Wiseman. Cain Wiseman is an incredibly uh, intellectual, scientific brain, if you like, who invented synthetic cobalt, like gunpowder. And he assisted, uh, he, he, he had emigrated from Europe across into England, and he had assisted England in many of their military campaigns by inventing this cobalt because England was, you know, the powers of the time and they needed plenty of gunpowder to fight their wars. And, and this man here, he, he, the United Kingdom, was indebted to this man for inventing it. And, and he just happened to come along and, and, and take up the mantle from Theodore Herzl and said, we, we, there's no, and he was totally opposed to Uganda. He said, no, if it's not Israel, it's nowhere. We're not going to go anywhere except, in those days, Palestine. That is going to be where we have to go. Well, how was that all going to work out? Well, it so happened that because the UK really did owe quite a bit to this man, he was able to get into the ears of the then Prime Minister of Israel by the name of Lord Balfour. He, yes, he was, he was the Prime Minister in 1905. So this is a couple of years after the Uganda thing fell over. He was able to sit down and have a very sincere, honest, quiet chat with the Prime Minister of Israel about the future of... Sorry, Prime Minister of England, about the future of the Jewish people and a homeland. And it took place uh, in a very plush hotel in London. And it goes something like this, the story. I think this is quite an amazing story, and I'm sure many of you have heard it. I've heard it dozens of times. I love it every time I hear it, especially from other people when I sit in the audience and hear it. Uh, the story goes like this. Uh, the Prime Minister said to Kane Wiseman, he said, Mr Wiseman, I am staggered that you still would not accept Uganda as a homeland for the Jewish people. Why would you not accept Uganda, which is a very fertile, rich in resources, and a, and a country we can give you on a plate? Why would you not accept that country in favour of a dust bowl in the Middle East known as Palestine, which we have no power to give you? What, what is it with you? Why do you not take Uganda? which came Wiseman looked at Prime Minister and said, uh, Mr uh, Prime Minister, if I was to tell you that London could no longer be the capital city of Britain, what would you say to that? To which there was a great laughter according to the record, a, a big British laughter. Oh, don't be daft, man, the Prime Minister said. London 
has been at the heart of the British people for a thousand years. And Cain Wiseman looked the Prime Minister in the eye and he said, with all due respect, Mr Prime Minister, Jerusalem and Israel have been at the heart of the Jewish people when London was a swamp. That's all he needed to say. The point had been made. And Lord Bowser tucked that up in his mind, lost the being Prime Minister at the next vote, but stayed in Cabinet, became Foreign Minister straight after the First World War, remembered that conversation with Kane Wiseman, and after the First World War, they had pushed the Turks out of Palestine, and surprise, surprise, they now had a nation of Palestine that they could offer as being a homeland to the Jews. And that is how we got the Balfour Declaration. And it was quite amazing, uh, that declaration. Uh, simply says, uh, it's uh, His Majesty's Government view with favour the establishment in Palestine of a national home for Jewish people. God rules in the kingdom of men and he will bring about his plan and he has been working with Israel throughout their entire history right up to this very day because he says, I want you to look at that nation and know that I'm working behind every move they make. I'm watching them from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. I do love those people even though they let me down, but I want everybody to know that something very, very unique about those people and what is unique about them is that God is working with them and they are proving his existence. God was behind those fishermen. He was behind Theodore Herzl. He was behind Kane Wiseman. Kane Wiseman, by the way, became the first president, not prime minister, first president of Israel when they were made a nation in 1948. And so when we see God saying, I'm going to send fishes, they came. They may not have had a great deal of success, but they paved the way for the documentation of the British, the Balfour Declaration. They, they paved the way of that. Now, when that... that uh, um, and this is interesting, this is just by the side. The, the day that uh, Lord Balfour signed the Balfour Declaration, the very, either the very same day, and I think it was the very same day, if not the same hour, as he's signing that declaration, the Balfour Declaration, the Russians are signing the Bolshevik Revolution Declaration. So we had, we've got almost identical same time Two nations about to be elevated in world affairs, Israel and the Russians. We'll just let you think about that for a moment or two, because, you know, the revolution started in, in Russia as well in the same time period as the, as the, uh, the um, uh, Balfour Declaration. So it's quite interesting. Just, that was just a side thought. Just keep that in your mind, because we'll be talking a little bit about that, uh, God willing, tomorrow night. But... But no one was rushing back. The Jews weren't rushing back. It was still a dust bowl. Why would they want to leave their beautiful, cushy workplaces and flash homes in Europe? There's no way they wanted to do that. Well, God says, oh, I know that's going to happen, so now hunters are going to come. Hunters will now come. And there's no other greater hunter in Israel's history than that man there. 
Adolf Hitler and Nazi Germany did exactly what God said would happen. They hunted the Jews from every cellar, every hiding place, every uh, rooftop where they were hiding in attics. They like uh, they they found them. They grabbed them. They were they, their whole duty was to annihilate the Jewish people. Uh, this was one of the most severest of flames on that little cream bush that you could ever imagine. And the hunters came and they were absolutely determined to wipe Israel off the planet as far as the Jewish culture were concerned. And he said, it says in Jeremiah 16, the result of that is that you will end up being hunted back to your own land because after the Second World War, the Jews had nothing. Not only did they lost the majority of their families, they lost their businesses, they lost their homes, they lost virtually everything. Oh, but wait a minute. We've got a homeland. We've got a homeland called Israel. We're allowed to go back there. And so we know the story. They clamoured their way back to Israel after the Second World War. There's a, there's a, a, a little reference that uh, Richard Crossman makes about a nation reborn. He said, without Nazi persecution, Palestine Jewry would not have been strong enough to win its war of independence. What he's basically saying is, the Jewish people returned to Israel absolutely determined to never, ever, ever allow the situation to be exterminated, for them to be attempt exterminating ever again. So they put on, and God was with them, we know this, they put on an extraordinarily un unbelievable fight of being a very small number against the 100 million Arabs at the time that didn't want them there. And that's what Richard Crossman says. We know if you add the Bible to that equation that God was actually behind them as well. Here's a graph. Here's where the fishermen did their bit. Uh, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't a great deal of success, was there, in getting the Jews back to the land. But then hunters came, you know, the Second World War, and straight after that, look, 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 look it's just skyrocketed. I'll gather you and bring you back into your own land. And I will, uh, I will be, in the eyes of all the nations, I will be seen as your God. Ye are my witnesses. I will bring you back. And they flooded back, particularly from Europe, particularly from Russia, particularly from areas where they had been persecuted. They came in their droves back. And you know what? It was only a week ago that they celebrated their 74th anniversary. From 1948 through to 2022, they celebrated their... 74th anniversary. It's a young, young nation really, isn't it? It's what I like to call a revived modern day nation because their history goes way back before many other nations, but they've been revived just as God said they would. So it's a remarkable revival. It's a remarkable prophecy. It's a remarkable story about a remarkable uh, a little country because there's a remarkable God behind that story. And, you know, that, that quote, I'll bring you into your own land, I shall place you there. You know, it's God that has spoken it and he who has performed it. And, and when you look at that particular terminology, you, you can put dates to them. You can actually put dates to them. 
I have spoken it. When did he speak it? He spoke it two and a half thousand years ago in the prophecy of Ezekiel and other, other places in scripture as well, but that's the main one. He spoke about it there. When did he perform it? 1948. It started a few years back, didn't it? Started with the fishermen back in the 1800, late 1800s. Then the First World War, Turks pushed out of, out of uh, uh, Palestine. And then Lord Lord Balfour, Cain Wiseman, Theodore Herzl, they all had their parts to play. Then Adolf Hitler comes along. This, you know, in Ezekiel 37, you have all these events about each different body part being an integral part of the vision of bringing the skeletons all back together. You can put dates along the side of those, of all these little events that it was stepping stones to bring to the point of 1948 when Israel returned to the land and were constituted once more as a nation. There's the fulfilment of Bible prophecy. You don't think there's a God behind this? Well, you can't really look at it any other way because the prophecies of Israel are sensational. And when you think about what they have achieved in 74 short years, that's not long, 74 years, uh, it's, it's amazing. It is absolutely amazing. I mean, here's Israel here today. That's Tel Aviv. They are a modern city. They're the only democratic country in the Middle East. And, and their financial situation is incredible. Their military power is incredible. They have fought five major wars and succeeded in every one of them where they were outnumbered up to 20 to 1. They even, in some stages, increased their border tenfold, right, right down into towards Egypt. They've given a lot of that land back. But you have to come to the conclusion that God is with them, that they are his witnesses. And when you think about the trials that only 77 years ago that they were going through, with the persecution in the, during the Holocaust, probably the worst persecution they ever had in their history was at that time period. where they, that, that was what the nation was. There was no nation, but that was the people being exterminated all throughout Europe. And in 74 short years, God has changed them into this unbelievably strong cultural society and they are definitive proof that God exists. Very strong, very powerful and uh, a witness that God is well and truly alive and he's working with that country. So I'm with you, says the Lord, and I will save you. Although I make a full end of all the nations, I've scattered you. I will never, ever make a full end of you. There's a reference back to that burning bush, right back there at the time of Moses. Burning, 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 but evergreen, evergreen, evergreen. Never, ever will they be made, there will not be a full end made of Israel. So what's the secret as we wind up our presentation? What is the secret? to Israel's miraculous survival and revival? Well, it's only one answer, that's God. And it's not a secret if you read your Bible. It's very clear. It's very open. It's very transparent. God is in charge of the destiny of all nations, but in particular, he is working incredibly hard with his little nation, Israel, because of the promises he's made to the, their fathers of old, particularly Abraham. So, in conclusion, let's put this quote up, very important quote. 
I'll bring you to our own land, 1948. We can put a big tick by that, can't we? He's done that. I'll place you into your own land, not Uganda, not anywhere else, not even the northern, northwestern part of the uh, uh, Western Australia. That was, that was touted as being a homeland for the Jews at one stage. No, not there. I am going to put you in your own land. I have performed it. I have spoken it. I am going to do it. You know that, that verse there in Ezekiel 37 goes on to say one more little comment at that point? It goes on to say this. First of all, let's put these dates. Two and a half thousand years ago, 74 years ago, he said I performed it and I'll make you into the land of Israel. And then it says, one king will be king to them all. There's never been a king of Israel since 1948. They were intending, they didn't actually even know how they were going to you know, run their political arena as far as a nation was concerned. And there were, the idea was muted that we will have David Ben-Gurion, who was their first prime minister, that will have him as a king. And as I understand it, there were even some postage stamps that they preempted and ordered with, with King David on it, that he was going to be their king. And when they presented this to David Ben-Gurion, his answer was, I have absolutely no desire to be the next King David, <laughs> a reference of the, the David of the Old Testament. And so they didn't go down that line and that wouldn't have fitted the mould because God says, no, 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 no. The king that I have in mind is someone extraordinarily special. It's going to be his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're living in this time period. That's us there, all right? We, we haven't seen this part of the prophecy being, fulfil being fulfilled yet. But it can't be long because also between there and there, we can put Ezekiel 38 because it fits between those two statements. Ezekiel 38 fits there. And that's our subject for our next seminar. was to prove, I believe anyway, using the nation of Israel, that there is truly a God. And that Israel, without a doubt, uh, does prove God's veracity, that he is real, that he is alive, that he is controlling the world events as they stand. And we, and we just looked at the nation of Israel to prove that point. And then once we established that there is a God... Then, of course, we, we, we went into Ezekiel 38 to show what is in store for this world as far as in the immediate future is concerned with the uh, Russia and its Confederate powers invading down into the Middle East and particularly into Israel, and that, that was foretold two and a half thousand years ago, and that event is right on our doorstep. Make no mistake about it. It's, it's not too far away. What they're doing over there in Ukraine is a little bit of a a test run for Russia, let's put it that way. And we don't want to sound flippant because it's terrible what's going on over there, but nevertheless, the Bible is very clear as to the, the aim of Russia and where they want to be 
in the big scheme of things, and that is down in the Middle East and down in Israel. Bit of a negative way to end the night, I guess, in Ezekiel 38, so we've asked you to come back tonight because there is a really good positive note to this uh, whole Bible prophecy, and that is, as the title suggests on the screen, that there is going to be a coming kingdom of God on this earth and Israel will be at the centre of it. And even though it was a little negative there, and we don't want to be too negative now, uh, nevertheless, uh, we do want to just remind ourselves of why we need to have a different, a, a totally different government in, this, in the society, in this world today. And I'm not talking about just a change of government like we've had in our own country here overnight. It's going to be much the same. Mankind is, is not ever going to be destined to rule his, his own life and his own ways. Uh, we're going to see that tonight. Uh, and we're, we're talking of a completely new worldwide government. But let's just remind ourselves of just how much we are in need of a world government. Just think of the last couple of years, all right? You know, from starting, say, the beginning of 2021 and going through to 2022 or even 2020. Let's start back there because the roadway, the pathway in the last two, two and a half years has been nothing but horrendous and things are really not getting much better, are they? Let's just have a little, this little clip to remind ourselves of, of where we are at the moment. dramatic, I know, but I tell you what, that's our world. 
And while we live here in Australia, we're a bit divorced from some of those visions that you've seen on the screen, but predominantly much of the world is in that type of atmosphere, that type of events every day of their life. It's a scary world in which we live. And we're going to end on a very positive note with another vision, a bit of vision, about the coming world. But we need to just lay that out there to start with so that we can try our very best to want to reach forward to have another world in place of the current one that we have. And Micah chapter 4 and those first four verses there speak very clearly about the coming world and how it's going to involve Israel. But as we uh, left Israel yesterday, uh, they were going to be invaded by Russia. We never really got into the, the details of how they were going to be saved. Uh, and I'll give me a couple of quotes now to show you that God will intervene, that they will be greatly humbled. They are his chosen people. They need to be humbled. They need to be shown that it's only been God that's been behind them throughout their entire history. They will, they will ultimately learn that they themselves were the ones that crucified their own Messiah. And once they've come to learn that and they've, and they've been greatly humbled by the great multitude power uh, base of Russia and her allies, that God will intervene and he will save Israel. And we just have a few quotes that tell us that he will save Israel from Russia and her allies. Uh, a typical one is in Joel 3 verse 16 that the Lord, it says, will roar out of Zion and he will utter his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth shall shake. But, he says, the Lord will be the hope of his people. Who's his people? Well, his chosen people are Israel. He will be the hope of his people. He will be their ultimate strength. He will save them from the Russian might and power that's going to come down and try once and for all to try and annihilate the Jewish people and their culture and identity off the planet. They will not succeed. And where does Israel figure, therefore, in the coming kingdom of God on earth? Well, here's what God tells us. And this is a prophecy yet to be fulfilled. He says, you, Israel, will become the head of all the nations. You will no longer be the tail now, Israel has never, ever, ever enjoyed respect from virtually any nation in the world. They've always been condemned, rightly or mostly wrongly, condemned by the world. Nations dislike Israel. If there's anything that breaks out in the Middle East, whether it's a war or whether it's an uprising, whatever it is, all fingers point to Israel in blame. They are not the head of nations. They do not have any respect predominantly from most nations around the world. Quite often they're ridiculed, they're an astonishment, they're a byword, they're a proverb, exactly what God said they would become. But God says, no, I'm going to reverse that. I'm going to flip that whole idea on its head and no longer will they be the tail, they'll be the head of all the nations. So the question we ask is, when is all this going to happen? How, how far away are we from this becoming a reality? We know they, that his... The Lord's own disciples asked that very question. After the Lord was resurrected, he appeared unto many and he appeared unto his disciples. In fact, he appeared unto 500 people and he was on the earth for quite a period of time, 40 days before he ascended into, into heaven. And they asked him this question. They said, so Lord, when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So they understood the prophecies of the Old Testament that one day 
Israel be restored to its former glory, even far better than any of the glory Israel's ever had, because it's going to have a different king. But they asked the question, when's it going to be? And here's how the Lord answered. He said, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed. Fixed. In other words, there is, as the Psalms and many other places in Scripture tell us, there is a set time in heaven, if you could just imagine a calendar like we have on our fridges at home, sometimes we have calendars. These days it's all electronics on our phones, but you might still let the old school, we have a calendar and you, you put a circle around a day because that's a reminder that something's going to happen on that day. And if there's a divine calendar up in heaven, you can be absolutely assured that there is a circle around a set date. It's fixed. The idea of that word is it's immovable. It's non-negotiable. It's a set day that God has set aside in which he's going to send his son back to this earth to establish the kingdom of Israel. And that's the answer he gave the disciples. That's the answer we've got. And we know that we are very close to that becoming a reality. And we know that from all of those events that we looked at yesterday and the, pro the prophecies that it talks about that would occur in the last days. So... <clears throat> Let's just analyse why we say that the kingdom's nucleus, if you like, the kingdom of God on this earth, it will be a worldwide kingdom. We know that. Daniel 2 verse 44 tells us that. It will be a worldwide kingdom. But its nucleus and its administration will be in Israel. And in particular, Jerusalem. Now the Jerusalem that's there now, the Bible tells us clearly that's going to be That'll be taken away and there'll be a new Jerusalem, a new temple, a new place of worship will be established in the precincts of where Jerusalem is today. So what do we know about this that the Bible quotes about Jerusalem? Well, Jerusalem means a city of peace. <laughs> I can only tell you of probably 40 years in its entire history and it's been around for thousands of years, 40 years I can only note where it was a city of peace and that was under the rule of Solomon. Other than that, it's been anything other than a city of peace. It's been a city of blood and violence. And even today, and we were there not that long ago in, in Israel, a few weeks back, and in Jerusalem. And uh, we were fortunate enough to, to go through Jerusalem without seeing an incident. Two days after we left, back to its trouble, back to the riots, back to the terrorism, you know, back, back to the, 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 the headbutting between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And, and it, it's, it, that's, that's Jerusalem. God says, no, one day it will truly be a city of peace. I apologise down the back if you can't see these quotations very well, but I will read them very quickly to you. Zechariah 8 verse 3 says, Thus saith the Lord. And when you see that as a preemptive statement in any verse, that's a, that's a guarantee. That's God saying, I'm guaranteeing the following statement. All right? It says, I am returned unto Zion and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem and Jerusalem will be called the city of truth and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Jeremiah 3, at that time they shall call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. Not of Mr Bennett, who's the current Prime Minister and he's going to be handballing that across to his offside in a, in a, a few weeks. Not, not him, 
Not Benjamin Netanyahu, who, who wants to make a comeback, which I doubt very much he will, but none of those people. It's not going to be left to those people. This is the throne of the Lord. That's the Lord Jesus Christ, ladies and gentlemen. That's what he was destined to be. Remember what they put above his cross when he was crucified? This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And he told Pilate, didn't he, if that was the reason I came into this world, I, I came in to be the king of the Jews. He hasn't been king yet, but he will be. It's going to be known as the throne of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all nations will be gathered unto it, to the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem. Neither shall they walk any more after the imagination of their evil heart. Wow, these are amazing words. This is, goes totally contrary to what we see going on over there now and indeed around the rest of the world. And many nations are going to come and they're going to say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Now, uh, Micah 4 and Isaiah 2 are very mirrored uh, images, if you like, of this vision of the kingdom. They say virtually the same thing. And God's going to teach us his ways and, and we will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth of Zion and the word of Yahweh, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And who's God's representative on the earth? It's none other than his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will be there in Jerusalem, giving out that law of his father. And all nations around the world are going to love to want to come there and learn about it. But Judah will dwell forever. Judah being Israel will dwell forever in Jerusalem from generation to generation. And I will plant them upon their own land and, and they shall no more be pulled out of their land that I have given them, saith the Lord thy God. So there's just four of many quotations that clearly tell us God has a specific plan, that area in Jerusalem, to place his temple of worship there and from there will emanate all of the righteous laws of God and all of his ways and people will just cannot wait to get there from year to year to worship. That's how wonderful it is. So the, the, you know, the prayer that we talked about over the last few sessions yesterday, uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as, as it is in heaven, will have its centre, will have its nucleus, will have the administration coming out of Israel, coming out of Jerusalem. That's where it's going to be. So Israel has got a very glorious future to look forward to. But it's going to have to go through a, a fair bit of pain before it gets to that. And so will this world, likewise. But once that pain is gone and that suffering is gone, it'll be such a marvellous world in which to live. It, it's, it's going to blow the minds of people away. They, just, they will never, ever, the word says, want to think, about, to think about the past. They will never look back to think about the past. They'll just be so overwhelmed with the brilliance of the life on this planet with the Lord Jesus Christ in charge. And so we have these guarantees from God. And he says, I'm going to establish a kingdom. This is a guarantee, ladies and gentlemen. This is a cast iron guarantee. And Daniel 2.44, I will establish the kingdom and it will never be destroyed. And you know he goes on to tell us this. He goes on to say that it's not going to be left to other people to run. It's not going to be left to that man there or that man there or it's certainly not going to be left to that man there to run the kingdom of God. 
they will lose their power. They will be swept away. There's, there's no way that mankind, a mere man, is going to run this world. No other people will be permitted to rule it, he says. He says it will smash all the other kingdoms, the kingdom of men, and it will put to an, them to an end. But my kingdom, says God, with his son reigning in his place on the kingdom of earth, my kingdom will be established forever. That's the picture of the, the word of God. That's the prophecy of the word of God. We have no reason to doubt it because we've used Israel to prove there is a God and he's bringing about all of these stepping stones leading up to that kingdom. Why on earth would we doubt that last part of the jigsaw puzzle of the prophecy to be fulfilled? And the outcome, well, this is the plan, the ultimate, the ultimate plan and purpose of God is to fill this earth with his glory. Wow, doesn't it need that? Huh. You know, it, this world is filled with everything else other than that. The complete opposite to that is currently what's filling this world. As truly as I live, says God, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. And, and what's the outcome? What's that going to be like? Well, what uh, Micah says in that verse 4 that uh, Josh read for us, it says this, Everyone will live in peace and prosperity, enjoying their own grapevines and their own fig trees. We'll move back to the agricultural society. No big polluting cities anymore. There'll be nothing to be frightened of. We won't have to be fear of coronavirus. We won't have to be fear of losing your money in the bank or the stock market or the shares. You won't have to be worrying about losing your job. You won't have to be worrying about thieves and robbers breaking into your, into your home and stealing things. All of those things will be done away with. We will have nothing to fear, says God. Absolutely nothing. We won't have locks on our doors. We won't have any of those things. It'll be a brilliant world in which we live. And this is a promise. Micah 4 tells us. The Lord of heaven has made this a promise. This is a guarantee. And we need to understand that. We need to want to look forward to being there. And I thought we might just talk a little bit about what it's going to be like in the kingdom with Israel as its centre and, and just how it can really give us this vision of the future to want to actually be there. Um, this is quite an interesting statement. It was said by uh, Martin Luther King Jr. who was assassinated in 1968. Uh, and it's, it's a true statement. It's a very, a very good statement. He said, we have, we have flown the air like birds and swum the seas like fish. And he, he was actually making that analogy by looking at the advancement of mankind and how they have been able to, to invent things, particularly killing machines, and how we have got these incredible killing machines that can fly like birds anywhere in the world and we've got these incredible naval vessels that can go around the world on nuclear power and never stop and go under the water and never have to surface. You know, for a year, some of them can come up. They can stay under what's only the it's only man, man on, the, on the submarines that have to come up, otherwise they'll go crazy, but they can, they can stay underwater forever. He says, you know what, we've mastered it. We've flown the air like birds. We've swum the seas like fish. He said, absolutely incredible what we've done. Uh, but then he goes on to say this, but we have yet to learn the simple act of walking the earth like brothers. 
We don't do it. You can't get on with each other. And, and people are fighting over ridiculous things around this world. Severe wars and, and tumults and terrorism and, and people cannot get on with each other. We have not learnt the very simple act of just walking the earth like brothers. And this is a frightening fact. You know, there's not been a single day since September, the end of Second World War, there has not been a single day when the world has been free of war. Not one single day since the end of Second World War. It's, it's, it's frightening. And it's been elevated just recently with the major war there in, in, in Europe, with Russia invading Ukraine, and I don't think it's going to stop there. Getting out of hand, isn't it? Biden's just signed off a $40 billion uh, um, uh, act to, to in their parliament over there, in Congress, to be able to supply $40 billion of killing machines for the Ukrainians to retaliate against Russia. And what's Russia done in return? They've just bombed today a massive university in Ukraine as retaliation. I don't know what that university must have had a link perhaps with America. I don't know the full story, but it's, it's tit for tat, isn't it? It's, you know, you do this and I'll do that. They have not learnt to dwell together in peace and harmony. And there's never, ever been a day of peace anywhere in the world since World War II. It's been absolutely dreadful. But the Bible says, in the kingdom of God, when Jesus comes back, it says in his days, that's the Lord Jesus Christ days, there shall be uh, righteousness will flourish and an abundance of peace. Now, you can't have peace unless you've got righteousness. All right? Just, just understand that. Righteousness must first come. What do we mean by righteousness? Well, doing things that are right in God's sight. And, and when you do that, then you can enjoy peace. Now, man can't do that, so we'll take that equation out. Well, therefore, you take that one away as well. You can't have peace unless you've got righteousness. But in his days, righteousness will flourish, and therefore, as a result of that, there's going to be an abundance of peace. Now, just uh, going back to this idea of what's going on in the world today, there's currently 41 wars being waged around the world, and one major one, of course, in the Ukraine. Uh, that, that's, I, it's hard to get our head around that when you live in Australia, isn't it? I mean, you know, 41 wars, hostilities, conflicts, and here in Australia, particularly here in Adelaide, we don't see any of that. And, and we are divorced from that, and we're very thankful for that. But you go to Europe, they live on edge. You go to Sri Lanka, they're living on the edge. You go to parts of Africa, they've always been living on the edge. Middle East is always aflame with problems and and tumults and terrorism and wars and conflicts. And, and, and it's all happening in 41 different areas around the world as we speak. But you know what the Bible says? The Bible says in Psalm 46 verse 9 that he, the Lord Jesus Christ, will put an end to wars all over the earth. Not just the Middle East. Not just in Ukraine and Europe. Not just in Africa. All over the entire world, there will be no wars. He will put an end to that. He'll put an end to it. And when you look at what man is spending on these wars, the might and the muscle of mankind, they're, 
their so-called intelligence. And let's face it, mankind, uh, we are fairly smart in certain areas, particularly devising cruel weapons, military purpose of, of, for killing. You know, that, that plane there is the most expensive war plane in the history of mankind. $1.3 billion for one stealth bomber. $1.3 billion, not million, billion. How incredible is that? The global military spending of this world is out of control. And that's like a time clock. That's, that's actually not live, obviously, but that's how quick it goes up. If you were to go into the military spending time clock in this world, that's how fast it's going. It's just ridiculous. And this is how mankind thinks. You're going to poke me, I'm going to poke you because I've got more weapons than you. Oh, well, I'm going to buy some more weapons so I can poke you back. Oh, well, let's keep on supplying these weapons, buying these weapons and building up our military powers and just keep fighting. That's, that's what this world is doing. 41 areas around the world, a major one, as we said, in Europe. You know, what mankind spends in two days on military hardware, they could save 100 million children from starvation. How crazy are we as human beings? Human nature, it's just ridiculous. We need saving from this. We've got, we got to be saved from this way of thinking. And you go back, you know, it's been the case with mankind ever since Adam and Eve. There's always been this problem. But it's accelerated now because we have the means and we have the the, the intelligence, the knowledge, and that's a prophecy from Daniel, isn't it? Knowledge shall increase in the last days prior to Christ's return. There will be an increase, enormous increase in knowledge. And that, that has brought about a lot of this spending, a lot of these military, these military hardware systems and so on, just designed to kill. It's accelerated to the point where we can't keep going. Something's going to give. We've got to be saved from ourselves. And mankind is not able to do that. The Bible says, of course, that in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns, that nations will never fight against each other again and they will never train for war again. In our reading for tonight, Micah 4 verse 3. Huh, it's hard to imagine that, isn't it? Well, let's leave war aside for a moment. Let's look at the sad heartache that's occurring over there in those poverty-stricken countries, which two-thirds of the world, by the way, go hungry. It's actually very sad that 15 million children, 15 million, I just can't get my head around that, are dying every year of preventable reasons, hunger. 15 million children. 40,000 children die every day because of poverty and hunger. Now, that's 160 jumbo jets full of children every day dying of preventable re reasons. Two-thirds of the world's population go to bed hungry. 53 million orphans in Africa. Twice the population of Australia in orphans. Orphans, little kitties running around with no parents and your heart goes out to it and you wish you could do something. And so we do give to some charities that help. You know, there are some that we know of ourselves as a community that we do help and that's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. That is a good thing. 
But it really, in the big scheme of things, it's not even a band-aid over a massive, big, festering sore, is it? But it's still a good thing, don't get me wrong. We need somebody else to come along and fix that problem. And this is what God says will happen. He says in Ezekiel 36, verse 29, 30, 29, I will make the grain grow so that you will never again have famines. I will make fruit grow on the trees and crops grow in the fields so that you'll no longer suffer. That's what he says in that verse. How about that? Man can't do that, but God can, and he will allow, he'll give his, his, his power to his son to be able to do that. How amazing is that? Man's not capable of fulfilling that prophecy, but the Lord Jesus Christ will. What a better day is waiting for us. Oh, I can't wait for that. It's one of my favourite things is to be able to save these kids, these, these kids that are innocent, in the, born into this world and, and from the day they're born to the day they die, they just suffer. It's horrible. That was voted the most poignant photo of the 20th century, of the, of the change of the century in the year 2000. And, and it's just sad to, to see these types of, of pictures. God says in Psalm 72, he says, I'm going to save these kiddies. And his son is going to do that. He is going to save the children of the needy. If you ever want to have a look in Psalm 72, just have a look at the priority that that statement takes. It's mentioned three or four times in that Psalm 72. And that's because God can't wait and his son can't wait to put an end to this suffering. Yes, they have an intrinsically strong emotional attachment and feeling to the suffering kids of this world. Our God does and so does his son and so do we because you wouldn't be human if you, couldn't, if you didn't enter into the suffering there and God does and so does his son and that's why Psalm 72, it's mentioned not once, not twice, not three times but four times that that's what he can't wait to do. Save the children of the needy. Well, while they are suffering over there, the world's economy is just being shattered, absolutely shattered. How's your super going lately since Russia decided to cross the border? <laughs> you know, we've seen how that sort of just suddenly taken a dive simply because a few tanks rolled across. We, we are, we, we're walking on eggshells with our economy, aren't we? It's just dreadful. The government at the moment, the world governments, are now in a debt level of $255 trillion. What? Just, it's just, you can't get your head around that figure. Here we, here we go. This might help you get your head around that figure. $255 trillion. That's the current world debt. $255 trillion. How, what is that like to understand that amount of debt. Now, when you say you're in debt, who are you in debt to? Well, we all owe it to each other. It's all owed to different countries. It's all owed to different banks. You know, the world, world's money bank is all split up through all the various countries, and if countries default on their loans, that means that country that is owed the money is not very happy with the country that, that owes the money. And so there's conflict starting. Now, there's $255 trillion owed at the present moment of time, and to put that in perspective, here's what it would mean. If I could spend $10,000 per second, it would take 800 years 
to pay it off. So if I had $10,000 in my pocket and I gave Josh $10,000 and I came down here and gave Andrew $10,000 and Linda's got a big smile on her face and gave her $10,000 and I did that every second, I'd, I'd take 800 years just to pay the debt off. It's got nothing even to do with the interest. Mankind's in all sorts of trouble. And the reason why he's in this trouble is because God said right back 1,500-odd years ago, or sorry, 2,500 years ago, he said this in Jeremiah. He said, O Lord, or Jeremiah said, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. We are incapable of making good, wise decisions. Oh, you might get a good, wise decision every now and again, but predominantly we mess things up and it comes very natural. We have a biasness towards doing the wrong thing. It is so much more easy to do the wrong thing than it is to do the right thing. And we inherited that human nature right from the very beginning. And that is our lot in life. And Jeremiah knew it. And he says, I know that man can't get it right. He's never going to get it right. And when you put up, you know, things like the total cost of the war since... 2001, another live counter. This is all the money being poured into financing the current wars on this planet. That's proof to me that we don't get it right. We can't get it right. It's, it's just not going to happen with mankind in control. We need someone more special to run this country, to run this world, to run this entire planet in a way in which all of these problems will be fixed. So how's it going to be fixed? How's it going to be mended? How are we going to repair it? Well, bear in mind that it will be repaired. Don't ever think, like some religions will tell you, that this world is destined to be doomed and it will be blown into smithereens and that's the end of society and the world as we know it. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that God created this world not in vain. He created it to be inhabited. He didn't want it to become a wasteland. He created it to be a living place for mankind and that's what he intends on doing. And that's why we've already put this quote up on the, on the screen in the past. That's why he says, I am going to fill it with my glory and that's a cast iron guarantee. Without doubt that will happen and it will happen extremely soon. It can't be too far away because we're, we're heading for that precipice of... We're, on the, we're already on the, 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 the downhill track of no return. We, we, the brakes are burnt out, ladies and gentlemen. We cannot hold this, this vehicle up any longer. The brakes are burnt out. We're heading down a, a, a track of no return. At the end, there is just oblivion. Someone's got to step in and pull us up, pull the reins, stop it all, and reverse the complete situation. And that's what the Lord Jesus Christ will do. Blessed be his glorious name forever. Let the whole earth be filled with his glory, says Psalm 72. It's not all in the Old Testament either, by the way. Acts 3 tells us this, there will be a times of refreshing. You know that word refreshing? You know when you, like I have now, really a parched, dry mouth and I take this water here and I go, mmm, that is so refreshing. That just felt so good. Well, just multiply that by a thousand times when we see what's going on in the world and then suddenly we can see it all being fixed up and we go, wow, that is just magnificent. That is fantastic. I want to be a part of this. 
I, I want to be right at the centre of it. I really want to be a part of all that is going on with all the changes. Well, this refreshing will come from no other person than the presence of the Lord because God is going to send his son, Jesus Christ, back to this earth. 300 quotations in scripture talking about the coming kingdom of God and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to this planet. And, and it says, who is to be kept in heaven until... Uh, until the time when all things are put right, of which God has given uh, by, his, by the word of the mouth of his holy prophets. So we're waiting, of course, until the word until is fulfilled. There's that set date, the fixed date, the non-negotiable set date to favour Zion, to favour Israel. Let's very quickly go through seven powerful positive promises about this new world and how it's going to be done God's way, not man's way, God's way. Have a look at these changes. We'll be quick with these. God's way. God's way. Here we go. God's way will be known and understood and obeyed. Isaiah 2, 3, and it's in Micah as well. He will teach us of his ways. We will walk in his paths. And I've already told you, that people will gladly do this. They won't be forced to do it. It says in scripture that they will want to go, as this verse here says, they will want to go with the Jewish people. Israel's at the centre of the kingdom of God. So anywhere in the planet, if you find a Jewish person, you'll go up to them and hang on to them and say, hey, I want to go with you because I know that your God is with you. And I want to go there and I want to worship your God. That's how, you, you imagine doing that for, to a Jew today? Jews are shunned. No one really wants to have much to do with the Jews. But in that day, everything's reversed. They'll be the head of the nations. And when you find that there's a Jew nearby, you will naturally want to go up and say, hey, I want to go with you over to Israel. I need to see this temple. I need to see the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to go there and worship. And they'll be given that opportunity and they will be taught of God's ways and God's paths. Here's the second one. God's way, healthy lives, joy, increase in food. So we take care of that problem and the famines and so on. And God's going to be very merciful to all those that love and fear him, Psalm 67. It's going to be a, a, an incredible and a wonderful day. Then shall the earth yield her increase and God, even our own God, shall bless us and all ends of the earth will fear him. That word fear doesn't mean fear. It means a respect, a profound respect. Point number three, seven, seven points we want to cover. God's way will fix the environmental problems. There's no doubt this planet is dying. It's suffocating. Man has done a terrible job in, in uh, polluting this planet to the point where we're now having weather patterns out of control and we're seeing it here in Australia. If it's not bushfires, it's floods droughts, it's, it's happening all around the world, it's out of control, it's got to be fixed. And mankind's desperately trying to work out how they're going to do that without messing up the balance of the economy. They haven't got the answer. It's not going to work what they do. But God, God will indeed uh, cause that to occur. Uh, God's way, no more frustration, no more anger. He's going to get rid of the wars. We've already seen that. God's way is going to, um, I've got to jump the gun a little bit there. This is where he's going to fix the, uh, fix the environmental problems. 
The desert, the dry land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice. You know, they will see the glory of the Lord, the power of God. The burning sand will become pools. The dry earth, springs of water. The field where the sheep take their food will become wetlands. And the water plants will take will be a place where grass will grow and water plants will grow. It'll be just a magnificent environment. It'll be like a botanical gardens everywhere we go. It'll be absolutely magnificent. God's way will provide satisfaction. We'll be satisfied with our daily activities. We won't come home from work anymore frustrated. You know, push the door open. Where's dinner, darling? I need to, to you know, have a rest. I've had a, a horrible day at work. People problems. I've got the sap. I don't know if I've got a job. You know, all of these things that can actually happen. Well, that won't happen in these days. We won't have to worry about that. Isaiah 65 says, No longer will there be a child whose days are cut short or an old man whose days have not come to their full measure. We'll be happy with our days. It, it, it will be absolutely fantastic. goes on to tell us they'll be building houses and living in them, planting vineyards, gardens, getting the fruit of them. The days of my people will be like the days of a tree, long-living Trees live for a long time and my loved ones will have joy in full measure in the work of their hands. That's a society I can't wait to be involved in and I reckon that will give us absolute peace of mind to be involved in that type of society. Number six, God's way will reward us with eternal life because he has stated on numerous occasions he wants you there, he wants me there, he wants everyone to be there. He wants us to be there. And he will restore harmony in all of nature. The wolf and the lamb will take their food together and the lion will make the meal of the grass like the ox. There will be no cause for pain or destruction in my holy mountain, says the Lord. And that, that cameo picture of the lion sitting with the lamb and so on is not just talking about the animal kingdom, it's talking across the board. There will be no more conflicts. There will be no more segregation of of peoples because of their colour or their, their cultures or whatever. We'll all get on absolutely in peace. No doubt about that at all. And as we said, God wants us there. He wants us there. He definitely wants us in his kingdom. He does not want anyone to perish. And we're going to be made free from this sin nature that we have and become servants to God and, of course, we will have his holiness and we will walk in his kingdom and understanding what eternal life is all about. Everlasting life is a promise to us. Sin will only bring death. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And that can only come through the Lord Jesus Christ and ultimately when he returns to this earth. So how close are we to this becoming a reality? How close is this going to be before it's a reality? Well, we've already spoken in the last two presentations, haven't we, about where we are at with Bible prophecy. But let's, let's, we're not going to spend time on this. Let's just put a few headings on the screen. We talked yesterday about Israel, God's chosen people. Jeremiah 30 verse 14 tells us very clearly that God is working with his people. He's bring them, he brought them back into their own land. He's made them a strong country there in the Middle East. All eyes are on that country. They figure prominently in world events and world affairs and world media because God says they are my witnesses that I exist. 
And at the same time, he's raised up Russia, as he said he would, in Ezekiel 38. And, and they are now at war. They've, they're starting to put all the little jigsaw puzzles in place that would map out exactly what, her, what Russia is going to be doing in the, in the near future. The increase in earthquakes, Luke 21, the disasters are happening around the world. These are all prophecies as a prelude to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and, of course, distress and fear. And I have not seen a planet in so much distress and so much fear that it is in today for all the multitude of different reasons, whether it be the war in, in Europe, whether it be all the other hostilities and conflicts around the world, whether it be because of the environment and the climate and all those terrible changes that are happening on this planet, whether it be because of the economic mess that mankind's in, whether it be because of the COVID and the other diseases are lurking in the background that might just happen to spring in and, and cause us all to go into shutdown again. Whatever the reason, it's all collectively come at once and this world is in distress and fear with no way out and that's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ said would happen prior to his return. We are seeing it. It cannot be too far away before the intervention into this world by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You know what the last words of the Lord Jesus Christ were? The very last words that he said to mankind were written in the book of Revelation 22, and this is what he says. He says in Revelation 22, Surely I come suddenly. The word quickly is the word suddenly. I'm going to come suddenly. I've given you all the pre-planning preparations, the stepping stones. I've told you what they are. My father's told you what they are. The prophets have told you what they are. You've seen them all happening. We've watched them all. You've seen all those stepping stones. They're the pre-preparation plans that need to be in place, the prophecies that we can see and we've witnessed happening right up to this very day. You've seen them all. Well, then suddenly... I'm going to come at an hour you think not. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? An hour you think not. Well, we want to be try. We want to try to be as ready as we can for this coming kingdom of God. It's going to be a beautiful kingdom. It's going to be a wonderful kingdom. And I think we'll all agree that it's something we are looking forward to, and it will only ever happen with the Lord Jesus Christ at its helm as the king over that worldwide kingdom where the nucleus of it and its administration will be in Israel and it will just beam its beautiful light rays of righteousness and, and, and pathway of righteousness and the wonderful teachings will just beam out of that little tiny country in Israel and will envelop the entire planet. How wonderful that's going to be. We need to be looking forward to that day to come. And uh, once again, lovely to be to be with you all, even if we are uh, all here with a very full stomach. That that uh, meal was lovely for all those that were involved in, in preparing that. Very very nice indeed. So 
I know what it's like when you're on a full stomach and then you've got to listen to a presentation. The blood is running from your heads to digest that food in the stomach and your eyes will just nod off. If I see that happening, I'll just go up and clap like that. <coughs> Look, Diane, you're already starting to close your eyes, obviously, and we'll, we'll get you away from you. No, not really. I wouldn't do that to you. Um, <coughs> anyway, good to be back with this part of the presentation because this goes hand in hand what we've already said about Israel. Remember what we said about Israel being the burning bush that was never going to be consumed. Well, there's going to be another major ignition source being put underneath that bush and it is going to go very, very burning very, very strongly in, in, in order to try and extinguish the life out of that bush. And that's all found for us in Ezekiel chapter 38 and in other places of the scripture. And it's our duty tonight to explain a little bit of that to you. But please be assured that bush will never be extinguished. It will ultimately be saved. And we'll probably look at that part of it, God willing, tomorrow night, how Israel will ultimately be saved and be a part of the coming kingdom of God. Now, we don't have a lot of time to go through in detail Ezekiel chapter 38. And in fact, just in a moment or two, we're actually going to read Ezekiel 38, or the presentation will read it for us, and it will be on the screen in pictorial view. So we'll be able to just imagine by looking at those pictures exactly what Ezekiel 38 is saying but we'll get to that in a moment. I think we'll all agree that this we, we are living in a world that has just so much trouble going on on every side. I don't think I've ever seen, I think I can speak on behalf of all of you here, I don't think I've ever seen a world in so much trouble. Not just with what's going on over there in Europe and Ukraine and Russia and so on, but just across the board. We really are in enormous, enormous trouble. And, and God says that a time of trouble will come such as never was since there was a nation on the planet. And we can, we can picture, we can start saying about, wow, what, worse than Second World War? Well, that was a world war. Yes, it was. But we have got a situation that's not only we've got wars everywhere on the planet, major one happening right before our very eyes in Europe, but we have all these other issues that are coming in at the same time. You know, and it doesn't matter where you look, whatever country you're in, even in this this lucky country in which we live, which we're very thankful we live in this country. It's a very peaceful country. And this whole nation today has come to a standstill to tick in a new, a new government. Whether we get a new one or whether we have the, the old one, God will decide on that. So whatever happens, it's God's will that it, it occurs. But make no mistake about it, they won't change anything. Nothing's going to change. The world is in a time of trouble such as never was. And it doesn't matter where you look, we have a problem. But that's not the world that we want to really be looking at, is it? We want a world that is going to give us a picturesque, beautiful place in which to raise our children. And, and the Lord Jesus Christ talked about that world when he taught us how to pray. He says, I want you to, to pray and say these words, Thy kingdom come, thy will, talking to his Father, on, will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So it's not all doom and gloom, because that's a prophecy. The Lord Jesus Christ was saying in that prayer, oh, this is a prophecy, he's saying, because one day God's will 
will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. And in heaven, you can only imagine the beauty, the glory, the peace, the righteousness, everything that goes with those words is up there in heaven where God dwells, where his son is, where the angels dwell. And on the earth, it's disaster at the moment. But God, Jesus Christ has said that my father, I want you to pray that my father will bring what is going on up there in heaven down onto this planet on earth. It's a prophecy and it will happen. And there's over 300 quotations in the Bible that talk to us about the coming kingdom of God and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. 300 of them. And that God is going to bring this planet into a harmony just like heaven. And he's going to do it through the return of his son. How is he going to do it? Well, Daniel 4 verse 17 says that God rules in the kingdom of men. He is the one that is in control of everything that is going on on this planet now. Now that might sound a little ironic after me just telling you how bad the planet is. And it is. The, the planet is out of control, but God is in control. He's, he's superintending over all of this because he prophesied, didn't he, through his word, that time of trouble will come like never before. But God is in control. And you know, those Bible students, and as Christadelphians, we, we take this book and we understand that it gives us wonderful prophecies of the future age. I've got Siri talking to me here, so I don't know why. <laughs> you don't understand, Siri. Well, you need to be an interested friend and be on the front of the chair there and listening. Um, so that might go off again. I don't know how to turn Siri off. Uh, so the, the thing is, what we're trying to say is, we don't get around with a, a sad look on our faces because we understand what this book says. And it, it holds out a most brilliant picture of the coming kingdom of God because God's in control. But there's some stepping stones that we have to endure on this planet. And every man, woman, child will have to endure these stepping stones that are fairly harsh, fairly difficult, and, and in some cases quite horrific before we get to that wonderful planet where Jesus Christ is going to be in control. And that will involve, in part, the uh, dissolution of the infrastructure of mankind, destruction of the infrastructure in, of mankind, a massive war in the Middle East, which is the title of what we want to talk about tonight, and, of course, a major earthquake that is going to occur around this world that will destroy mankind's infrastructure. So Ezekiel chapter 38 is all about the time of the end. That is a scriptural terminology that we're using. The time of the end. The end of what? The end of the planet in which we, which we live that's going to be destroyed. And that's, the, that's it. We're just going to be broken up into a million pieces and float through outer space. And that's the end of it. No, it's not the end of this planet. It's the end of the rule of man and the beginning of something absolutely incredible, which will be the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what's Ezekiel 38 all about? Well, that's what we're going to talk about tonight, very quickly, before within an hour. What is this all about? When will it occur? Who's it going to involve? And why will it happen? We could spend hours alone on Ezekiel 38. We just want to try and simplify as quickly as we can and just understand a little bit more about it. We're going to read it in a second, but I'm going to give you a brief summary of what Ezekiel 38 is all about. This is a summary. It's on the screen there. You can read it with me if you like. Here it goes. <clears throat> 
At an identical time period, an incredibly powerful coalition of nations headed up by one particular nation and person will swiftly sweep down into the Middle East to take control of enormous wealth. At this point, they will invade Israel with a determination to destroy them. They'll be met by very limited resistance. God, however, will intervene to save his people from total genocide, and this power from the far north will come to an end and the entire world will experience a catastrophic earthquake that will change it forever. All humanity will then finally realise that there is a God of this universe. That's a paraphrase of Ezekiel 38. Now, it's, uh, it's, it's rather daunting to hear that as a, as a future event that's going to occur. In fact, when you look at that, that you can't really be happy that this is going to happen because this sounds very scary. Yes, it is scary. It's, it is a scary prophecy. But the, out, the final outcome is nothing short of brilliant. And this is a prophecy that is absolutely necessary to occur so that God can clear and sweep clean man's infrastructure on this world. It's got to go. We can't have the big cities, the polluting cities and the great factories and the greed and all of those things that go with the infrastructure and the way in which the political systems run these countries. We can't have that. It's got to stop and it has to come to an end. And Ezekiel 38 is going to tell us how that's going to happen. And surprise, surprise, it's going to involve the nation of Israel and a few other nations as well. Now you might say, this all seems a little bit far-fetched. Is this really going to take place? Well, I think we are starting to see the jigsaw puzzle of this whole prophecy coming, coming to, to, to pass. You know, God working through the angels to bring about his plan and purpose, and the, 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 each little piece of the jigsaw puzzle is being put in slowly but surely to give us the big picture of this all about to take place. And you know what, if we, if we, if we wanted to add the next line to Ezekiel 38, it was, as we said in our previous presentation, it was to comment because Ezekiel 38 fits in that little phrase where God says, I'll bring Israel back into the land. And the next comment you could add to this particular chapter is, and one king shall be king for them all. And that is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ that precipitates all of this happening. So let's just dissect Ezekiel 38 a little, bit, a little bit. So what is this all about? Well, we're given a bit of a clue that it's obviously about Israel because it's, Israel is mentioned quite a few times in this particular chapter. Uh, Israel figures prominently, actually, in Ezekiel 38. So they have a bit of a nucleus in this chapter and what it's all about. And we also are given an indication of another set of nations and headed up particularly by one. We've got, we're introduced to what's called Gog, Prince of Rosh, verse 2, 3, 14, 16, 18. So we've got two entities here, two, two national entities that we need to really try and understand what this is all about. Who is Gog? We know who Israel is. We know that they've fulfilled the prophecies of being returned to the land. God's been in charge. 
We know all of that's true. We have no doubt that God's been behind it all. We can see God working in the nation of Israel. Now we need to see the rest of the big picture of who Gog actually is. And when will this occur? We're given an indication of when it will occur uh, in Ezekiel chapter 38. You might have heard this being said in the, in the reading. It says, after many days in the latter years, thou shalt come back into the land. Who's that talking about? Israel. Happens in 1948. So sometime after 1948, the next part's going to happen. You've been brought back from the sword. You are gathered, gathered out of it many nations, uh, many people against the men. Oh, so sorry. Um, thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword. So this is, this, this is now this, this other entity headed up by Go. And you will come against my people Israel, which have always been waste. Israel wasn't desert, desert <coughs> land, Palestine. Now it's a very fertile land. But it's brought back from the, all, out of all the nations and they shall dwell safely, all of them. So there's your time period. So we can say that time setting is from 1948. We, we would have to see this other entity, this other power that's been spoken of in Ezekiel 30, 38, is growing in its own way as being a superpower. Now, since World War II, there's probably only one major country that has really grown into a superpower. You could always, almost argue America was already there, but the only other country, really, was Russia that really accelerated into being quite a superpower. And we'll get to see that in just a little bit more detail in a moment. So then the word goes on to tell us using these terms, Gog and Rosh. Son of man, he says, set your face against Gog. Who, what's that terminology mean, Gog? Of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach and Tubal. Who is Gog? Well, let's start with Rosh first of all. Who is Rosh? Now, I don't know if anyone's been to, to Russia. I've been a couple of times to Russia. And on the taxi plates of all the Russian cabs, they have Ross as the, as the, as the you know, like we have SA or Victoria's Vic or so on. They have Ross, R-O-S, on every taxi plate. Well, it was in Moscow and St. Petersburg. So we start, we start to get a little, there's a little bit of a connection here to this old Hebrew word, Ross. Well, let's go back a bit further than the taxi plates of of Russia at uh, um, Moscow and St. Petersburg. And let's have a look what Jusenius, now who was Jusenius? What, what would he know about this? Well, Jusenius was a very notable German theologist, uh, born in 1786. Uh, he, he made it his lifelong ambition to study the Hebrew language. And he came to the indisputable conclusion that the word Rosh in Ezekiel 38, where it's mentioned a few times, and even in Ezekiel 39, it is undoubtedly referring to the Russians. Now, he had no vested interest to say that because at the time he wrote that, Russia was nothing but a marshland, really. It was a, a poverty-stricken country, predominantly. Uh, so when he, he wrote that, he wrote because he understood it to be that way. They, he said it's undoubtedly talking about the Russians. Alright, so that's Rosh. Who's Gog? What's this term Gog mean? Well, Gog in the Hebrew means one at the top. One at the top. What could that possibly mean? Well, if you look at the map of the world, if you had a globe and you looked at the map of the world, 
and, you, and you, you put it on the table and you look down and you spin it around, you would see that Russia is like a crowning top, if you like, to, the, to the, the whole rest of the northern and southern hemisphere. You look down, it's at the top. So geographically speaking, they are like a roof over the, the rest of the planet, particularly all of Europe, Middle East and Asia. It's all about Russia. So it's a very apt title that's given to Russia as being one at the top. Now, if you've still got doubts that is this talk about Russia coming down to invade Israel with, with some Confederate nations, by the way, or could it mean maybe someone else? Well, there, there is another clue in Ezekiel 38. And the other clue in Ezekiel 38 is that God says you're going to come from your place out of the uttermost parts of the north. You and many people with you. So they won't be alone, but this is the, this is the country that's getting the preeminence in Ezekiel 38. And you're going to come from the uttermost parts of the north. Now, you draw a line straight up from Jerusalem and you dissect the outer suburbs of Moscow. You go any further north than Moscow and keep going, you come to the Antarctic. Now, I don't know of any other nation on the planet that is the uttermost <coughs> northern regions of, of Israel, because this is the starting point, is Israel. You're going to come from the uttermost parts of the north from Israel. I don't know of any other country that would have the ability to make a move into the Middle East. Because if you keep going up and past Moscow, you're going to come to the North Pole, and I don't think they've got an army, not that I know of, anyway. So we're pretty well set that this is a geographically, Gog is, is one at the top. God says, if you're mistaken about that, well, I'm just letting you know that it's the outermost parts of the North, and this is the region. So we can start to put a few names other than Gog to Ezekiel 38. We can now start looking at the names like Russia. And when you're talking about Gog, by the way, let's, let's look at Gog as an individual. One who was at the top. Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh. It's interesting, isn't it? Magog. Where's Magog? Magog is Central Europe. And by the way, includes Ukraine. It includes Ukraine. So... If we look at Gog from being a, a country, one at the top, Russia. If you look at Gog from being an individual, it's one, it's a person who, who really is at the top of their, their game. And despite the, the, the fact that the Western media is painting a, a typical propaganda way of looking at what's going on in Ukraine, uh, that, you know, Russia's getting done and Ukraine's going to win the war and it's all going to be over very shortly. They've been saying that now for about eight weeks, but of course it's dragging on and on and on and on. We've just come back from the Middle East when we were in Turkey and when we were in um, Dubai, we saw the Al Jazeera network news and that doesn't paint that picture. It paints a little bit of a different picture. It says, yeah, Russia's struggling, but Russia's Russia and they'll just keep on coming and just strangle, strangle, strangle anyone that they want to finally uh, take control of. But as an individual, this man here is quite incredible. He's quite incredible. He was voted, of course, for four times in a row, the part, well, not in a row, but over the past seven years as the most powerful person on the planet. He still really holds that mantle, doesn't he? I mean, he's got everybody running in all different directions over what are we going to do about this war in Ukraine. 
Uh, he's uh, one man that commands attention wherever he went as a world leader. I don't think he's going to be travelling too far out of Russia these days. Uh, but wherever he went, whenever he went to summits, whenever he visited countries, whatever he is, they always said he was a little man of stature, he's only about five foot seven. And wherever he walked into a room, the world, the room would go immediately, here's Putin. He's in the room. And they'd all stop in awe of this man. And, and they've still got him. It's more of a hatred now, isn't it, than, a, than an awe. But it's a profound respect for this highly intelligent man. And he is just, you know, idealistic. He's just following his own instincts as to where he wants to direct this country. But God rules in the kingdom of men. And he is the one that is directing everything to happen according to how he wants it to go. And this man is definitely following in the avenue that God wants him to go. So he does fit this uh, particular bill as being one at the top. Well, of course, uh, <laughs> this cartoon really says it all, doesn't it? You know, of course I'm hungry. I've been hibernating since 1991. And he's looking for a bit of a feed, isn't he? And now he's, a, he's attacked uh, Ukraine. And, and the world doesn't know what to do. All they can do, they're too scared to engage Russia. They do not want to engage Russia in war. NATO does not want to step a foot out of line. But they will handball every weapon they can to Ukraine to try to continue the war and perhaps make some inroads into pushing Russia back. Uh, the only thing that's happening is, is the country is going from worse to you know almost oblivion wherever Russia has been and, and fighting has taken place. It's just terrible what's happening. But I don't think we've seen half of it yet. It's still getting out of control. But Ezekiel 38 is all about this confederate power headed up by Russia, by somebody who's in control of Russia, to make a move down into the Middle East. Not into or Europe is part of this whole picture. We'll see in a second. But here's a couple of very amazing phrases in Ezekiel 38. God says, I will turn you around. Now, this is a reference to go. This is a reference to Russia. I will turn you around and I will put hooks in your jaws and I'm going to lead you with all your armies and horsemen, with all your confederate powers, I'm going to lead you into this battle. You, you're going to be dragged into this battle. Hooks in your jaws. What does that mean? Well, first of all, that terminology, I will turn you back, in the Hebrew, it actually means I will reverse the situation, I will restore you to your starting point, if you like. I'm going to bring you back to your former glory. Now, under uh, when, the, when the Soviet Union collapsed, 1991, Boris Yeltsin uh, became the, uh, the Prime Minister of, or President, sorry, of, of Russia, in charge of Russia, and he, he's his total diet was probably vodka. He was not a very good president at all. And the whole of the Russian, you know, former glory collapsed. They lost their satellite countries. Ukraine was one of them. Poland, not, um, yeah, Poland, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia. A lot of those countries were all part of the USSR. And he lost, that Russia lost control of all those countries and they became just an entity within themselves and they really lost their way. They lost their way quite considerably. And in fact, 
One could say they were on the verge of total being wiped out completely as an entity, as a superpower. But then along came a man by the name of Vladimir Putin, who was vote, voted into power in the late 19, 1990s, 1999 to year 2000, and he completely turned Russia back again. Well, God did anyway, but he worked through that man, Putin. God says, I'm going to turn you back to your starting point. I'm going to reverse the things that are going wrong in your economy, in your military, and in the fact that you've lost your superpower status. I'm going to turn it round. I'm going to restore it. And he grabbed hold of that man, Vladimir Putin, and he put him into power because he was the man that could do the job. And wow, did he do the job. He was able to turn that country around and to bring them back to their former glory. Uh, this gentleman here says, um, and this was written back in 2015, and this was back when Russia had just taken Crimea, Crimea a year earlier. He said, this is not about Ukraine. He says, we've seen Russia, how they've taken Crimea. He says, it's not about Ukraine. Putin wants to restore Russia to its former position as a great power. There is that prophecy. I will turn you back to your starting point. I will bring you back to that point where you are now a superpower. There's high probability that he will intervene in the Baltics to test NATO's Article 5. So uh, it's quite interesting what we're seeing happening over there right now, and we are definitely and have definitely seen over the last 20 years anyway, particularly the last 10 or so, how Russia has reverted back to its former glory. Uh, Vladimir Putin has always said the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century was the collapse of the Soviet Union. He wants to get them back. He wants to get them all under the fold again. This is his, this is his um, ideology. I know my ways may not seem popular, he says, by many of my people, but one day soon the truth will be realised and Russia will again return to its former glory. There is Ezekiel chapter 38. I will turn you back. I'll reverse the situation. I'll put you back to your starting point. And that's exactly what God has done. And he, he prophesied this two and a half thousand years ago through the prophet Ezekiel, and we are seeing this before our very eyes. I will turn thee back. The Russian bear is stronger, more powerful than it's ever been before, says Michael Snyder of the, the Economic uh, magazine. I will return thee. He says, uh, the time has come where Russia has roared back to life. Anyone who underestimates Russia at this point is making a huge mistake. The Russian bear is back and today it is more formidable adversary than it ever was at any point during the Cold War. Sure, they seem to be having a few struggles over there in Ukraine, but let's treat this as a little bit of a, uh, a test run for Russia. They'll sort out where they could have gone better and they will improve and they will get it better and they'll still use Ukraine as a bit of a training ground for their next massive move, which will be eventually down into the Middle East. Now, Russia is the second to the United States in total military firepower. In fact, they're first when it comes to nuclear power. They've got more nuclear weapons than, than any other country on the face of the earth. But in, as far as its geographical area is concerned, it is the number one in Europe, Asia and the Middle East. So there's no power still like Russia. And don't, don't fall for the, the Western propaganda that it's, it's a paper tiger, it's not a paper tiger, because 
Only yesterday or was it this morning they captured another 800 Ukrainians. They're going to use them as bargaining chips, these soldiers they've caught. So Russia is certainly, certainly there. Military spending might not be on the level of the United States of America, but they have uh, spent and were up until the end of 2023 allocated in the last 10 years $700 billion on its armaments. So that's, that. you can't say that they have not returned to their former status as a superpower. No one wants to engage them. Ukraine's only doing so out of self-preservation. NATO does not want to engage Russia. Americans do not want to engage Russia. Everyone's a little bit too scared to engage Russia because of the red button that could be pushed. And, and so they're all standing back just saying, what do we do? Funnel some more weapons into Ukraine, let them fight the battle, and fingers crossed we might see some things happening that'll go our way. The Bible predicts and prophesies a very different picture to what Western propaganda is, is telling us. We're going to see some major things happening not just in Ukraine, but right across Europe and down into the Middle East. Now, what does this term put hooks in your jaws? I will lead you out with all your military forces. Well, that's a terminology that really speaks of, a, of, a, of an act of self-preservation. It's not as though one day Russia's just going to wake up and go, I think I might invade the Middle East. Why not? You know, let's just do it. That's not what that verse is telling me. That's telling me God's put hooks in the jaws of Russia and it's going to drag them down there as an act of preservation. They have no alternative but to invade the Middle East. And that's what the Bible says that they're going to do. It's an act of self-preservation. Why? What could possibly cause Russia to come down into the Middle East and invade that particular area and particularly uh, Israel. Well, let's go back to this man. He's not in, in this job for the money. That it's, it's a lowly paid job. Russia gets nowhere near the same amount of money as our own state premier. Malinowskis gets more money than that. And here's this man here that is at the top of his game, controls the world. They all hate him, but he's in control. And he earns $190,000 a year. He is an extraordinarily patriotic man, very nationalistic. He is, he is still loved by over 80% of his people. That's a, high, that's a high rating to have as pop in popularity. Um, he's interested in protecting Russian interests. And guess what? Surprise again, he's very interested in protecting his own assets as well. And believe me, <coughs> He has got some assets, some major assets. He only gets $190,000 a year. Elon Musk, who oscillates between him and Jeff Bezos as to who's the most wealthiest man in the world, they oscillate. He was interviewed just only a couple of months ago about his wealth, and he just said, I don't know why you're all looking at me. You need to be looking at Putin. He's got more money than me. Now, I don't know what Elon Musk is worth today, $200 billion. Well, for Elon Musk to say, why are you going to ask, because no one's going to go and ask Putin how much money he's got, but Elon Musk to say that, he's obviously in, gone into a little bit of detail and said, that man's got more money than me. Now, he's estimated to be worth $200 plus billion. Where did he get this money from? Where did he get this money from? 
the watch alone that he wears is three hundred thousand dollars. So he's not he's either got a very good investment advisor that's worked out how much money he can make on one hundred and ninety thousand a year, or he's got his money from elsewhere. Well, during his tenure as president, and he remember he swapped a little bit. He went to be prime minister and then back to president, and and so he could rewrite the constitution and stay in the top job for as long as he could. During that whole tenure of being in charge of Russia, he was able to use his very talented skills and a little bit of muscle behind those skills and he found himself owning significant shares in the Russian energy sector and particularly a company called Gazprom. Gazprom is the largest gas exporter in the world. They export more gas particularly to Europe than any other uh, exporter of gas in the world and he is particularly protective of that from an, Russia's point of view and from his own asset base point of view as well. 50% of Russia's revenue comes from selling energy to Europe and it just so happens that in the last few years Israel's, Israel has found an enormous amount of gas offshore in two areas that they've, they've found it. I think it's Leviathan and Tamar, if I remember rightly. And they, as a result of the Ukraine war, have accelerated their ability to work in conjunction with Egypt to get gas to Europe so that Europe does not have to be beholden to the gas from Russia. And this is a headline in the recent paper that just came out. Putin, Russia in its place, little play on words. Putin, Russia in its place. Israel's pipeline will foil Moscow. Wow, what a headline that is. Israel's pipeline is going to foil Moscow. Israeli natural gas pipeline to Europe is set to break the Kremlin stranglehold on energy. Do you reckon that Putin would be happy with that going on? He can see A, Russia's 50% of Russia's uh, uh, money that they make is, is at threat, and B, my own bank account's at threat. Two things that are going to make him, in an act of self-preservation, think about, I've got to deal with this situation. And when you look at what the Word of God tells us about this Gog, this person of great intrigue, this one who is a leader, it styles him in Daniel chapter 8 as this. Tell me if this doesn't summarise Putin to a T. And at the latter end, it says, uh, a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue will arise. He will become very strong, not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation. <laughs> Ukraine and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the mighty men and the holy people. There's a reference to him coming down into Israel to attack God's chosen people. He will cause deceit to prosper. He will uh, consider himself superior. This is Putin to a T. When they feel secure, when Russia really feels as though they've really got everything they want, he will destroy many and take his stand against the Prince of Princes. So he will even have the audacious attitude to fight against the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet, he will be destroyed, not at 
by human intervention or human power. So the Lord Jesus Christ will come and will destroy that man. But you, you look at that first part of that, that, that paragraph there on the screen, which is a, basically what Daniel 8 is telling us what to expect. You can't help but see Putin in that, can you? And if it's not him, it'll be someone very, very close in the same wavelength and thinking as, as Putin. And talk about master of intrigue. No one can really work the man out. He is incredibly difficult person to understand what he thinks about and how he goes about and does things. Um, astounding devastation, Chechnya, Georgia, Crimea, MH17, Syria, now Ukraine. I mean, who, who's next? Well, the Bible tells us who's next. We're getting down into the, going to be going down to the Middle East. Now, we don't have time to discuss all the rest of these countries, but believe it or not, the ones that are going to be siding with Russia with all of these are going to be those ones in red. So right across Western Europe, they're actually going to side with Russia. I can't tell you how that's going to happen. All I know is I believe it, because God said it's going to happen. It's hard to imagine Western Europe joining forces with Russia, but something will happen that will trigger them to be anti-West, to be anti-Britain, anti-America, and anti-the Commonwealth countries which, by the way, really are forming a very tight little partnership, aren't they, since England has left the European Union? And so all of these countries are going to side with Russia, and Russia's going to be at the top, they're going to be the ones that lead them, but they've got this massive power base behind them. And they're the ones that are going to come down into Israel. And the ones that are going to oppose them is Tarshish, and you might go, what that area in the peninsula of Saudi Arabia, why are they considered a bit of a power? Well, these, the, the biggest, some of the biggest bases, military bases on the west, from the uh, UK and from the USA, are based on the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. So you can see that these are the western entities that will oppose this great conglomeration of nations that will come down into Israel. But of course their, their opposition is pretty weak. So Ezekiel 38 says, out of necessity, Russia will come down with their powers that be that will follow with them all the armies and horsemen and tanks and military hardware and ships and everything are going to pour down through into the Middle East. They're going to come like a storm. They're going to cover the land like, the land like a cloud and they're going to think an evil thought, just like Adolf Hitler thought an evil thought. And that evil thought is, you know what, this world is in so much of a mess and most of that is because of the Jews. Let's do what Hitler didn't do and let's wipe them out. And that's the evil thought they're going to, to come up with. And that is what Ezekiel 38 is all about. You know, Russia, this, I really, this is one of the best little speeches that Putin ever gave. And boy, if this is not Ezekiel chapter 38, I don't know what is. This was his speech at the uh, conference. In, yeah, I know it's old, but it doesn't matter. It's very applicable. So he says, Russia sees the outbreak of global war as almost inevitable. This is Putin. We are prepared for it and are continuing to prepare for it. Russia will not close herself off from the world, but anyone who tries to close us out will be sure to, here's Ezekiel 38, like a cloud, like a speeding storm to come across the Middle East, they will be sure to reap a whirlwind. You know, he's almost, he's almost at verbatim wording the Ezekiel chapter 38. 
And of course, the question is, well, who's going to stop them? Who can't stop them? Who's stopping them now? No one's really stopping them. They're, they're, they've hit a bit of a brick wall and a bit of a hurdle, but they're, they're going to keep on going. They'll just put that stranglehold on tighter and tighter onto Ukraine and get everything in, in order, ready to make their next move. But who's going to stop them when they've got all this power behind them? The rest of those nations we've mentioned, who's going to stop them when they come down into the Middle East? Well, it's not going to be the Western powers. They're not going to stop them. The only one that's going to stop them is God. And that'll be through the return of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will stop this annihilation of the Jewish people. And they will, they will invade Israel. And Israel, who are a very powerful country in their own right, will, have no mat, will be no match at all for the power of, of Russia and its confederate powers that will be with her. So, to paraphrase how this is all going to happen, Ezekiel 38, paraphrase is simply this, Gog will attack Israel with the intent to destroy it. Verse 18. God's anger will be against Gog and a great earthquake will commence in Israel. It will start in Israel, this earthquake, and this earthquake will have a major worldwide implication, destroying man's complete infrastructure. It will be totally destroyed. The armies of Gog will all but be destroyed and along with them will be the Western powers. So they won't get a chance to gloat that they are the winners. They will also be taken out of the picture and the world will finally realise that there is a God. That's the outcome of Ezekiel 38. And Christ, the Son of God, is going to be revealed to all on earth. Now, <clears throat> you might be saying, look, you know, you Christadelphians, you've jumped on the bandwagon here because, you know, there's other religions that say this as well, and there are. There are other Christian religions that would, not, would accept everything that we've just said here tonight. They would say, yes, Israel are God's chosen people. Yes, uh, Ezekiel... Uh, 38 is about Russia and, and its powers that are going to come down and invade the Middle East. Yes, they believe in the return of Christ. You, you've just jumped on the bandwagon like all they have in the last you know, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years. Well, not so. We, uh, we haven't just jumped on the bandwagon at all. Uh, the, the vast majority of, of Christian re religions that preach the same as what we've just told you here tonight have done so only for the last 30, 40, 50 years. Christadelphians uh, have been saying this for a lot longer than that. It's the book, uh, uh, the one of the founding members of the Christadelphian beliefs is a man called uh, Dr. Thomas who wrote a book, Elpis Israel. And in that book he wrote this. You ready for it? Have a read of this and tell me if this is not today's situation. The future movements of Russia are notable signs of the times because they are predicted in the scriptures of truth. When Russia makes its grand move for the building up of its image empire, we're watching that happening today, ladies and gentlemen. Everybody, we are watching it now. When they make that move to build up its image empire, let the reader know that the end of all things as at present constituted is at hand. In other words, everything that Ezekiel 38 has been talking about is coming to pass, and when you start to see it come to pass, everything 
that has been spoken of in the Bible is about to be fulfilled. The greatest of which of all those events is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to this earth. Now, when was that book written? 40 years ago? 50 years ago? 60 years? 70, 80, 90, 100? No, that book was written 174 years ago. How on earth could that man who wrote that comment there ever have seen what is going on in the world today and told us all to wake up, get ready for the greatest event of all time? How could he know? Well, he didn't have a vision, all right? He didn't profess to have the Holy Spirit gifts. He didn't say that he, you know, he found a couple of stones somewhere and they gave him the secrets of what, you know, to believe in and, and therefore he kept them secret and he knows all the details and I, I only and the prophet just come to me and, and I'll be the leader of everybody that wants to believe in the same things as me. He didn't do any of that. You know what he did? He read his Bible. That's what he did. He read his Bible, he studied it and he understood it and he said 174 years ago that there's a country by the name of Russia, who by the way, even back then, of course, was still a poverty little stricken nation of no major consequence at all. But he said that they are going to take a world platform stage presence and they are going to make their grand move to build up their huge empire and then everything is going to happen according to God's plan. 174 years ago he wrote that. So we haven't jumped on the bandwagon, ladies and gentlemen, at all. So the purpose of this conflict, conflict, why is it going to happen? Well, the last few verses tell us, particularly the last one, that I will be known in the eyes of the nations of this world that they will know that I am the Lord. I am the God of Israel, and I am not going to let that bush with this massive fire that Russia is going to put under it I'm not going to let that bush just burn out into ashes they're going to be definitely tried like they've never been tried in their history before but I am going to intervene and I'm going to save my people Israel and I'm going to destroy all those that would try to destroy Israel including Russia and I'm going to greatly humble the western powers and I'm going to take away man's infrastructure and I'm going to ensure that this world knows that I am God. And I'll be known in the eyes of every man, woman and child on the planet. And God's inviting you and me to get ready for that event. That's what he's doing. He's putting out an invitation. Here's what's going to happen. Hey, do you want to be a part of this future world that's coming? Get ready for it now. Don't wait for it all to happen because you might be part of the ones that lose their life in the great earthquake to come. I don't want to take that risk to you. I, I hope not. I hope you don't want your families to be a part of that either. I think you want them all to be saved. And we want to, we're looking forward to, to a greater world to come because Armageddon is, uh, is about to happen. It's only used once in the Bible, the word Armageddon. Basically means a place where God is going to gather all the nations together and he's going to destroy their power, their worldwide infrastructure and pave the way for a better world. So that was that's how we started our we started our night tonight, didn't we, with with the world that is in, in crisis, a time of trouble such as never was. I think we're just li living on the tip of the iceberg of this. I think it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. We don't know how much longer we've got, but we are seeing this world just 
spiralling completely out of control. Uh, the, the world I want is this world here. That's the world I want, it's the world you want. You want that for your kids. It's not a pretty picture, the man in control. Of the Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.